0: Welcome to the Political Pharmacist Podcast, the first podcast to focus on the political side of pharmacy. Here's your host, Eric Geyer. Welcome, Political Pharmacist Podcast listeners. I'm your host, Eric Geyer, and with me today I have Dr. Frank North. He's a consultant pharmacist and founder of Frank North & Associates. He's also a consultant pharmacist of Rodox. And he's also the president-elect of the National Pharmaceutical Association and a graduate from Texas Southern University, so go Tigers. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Frank North.
1: Hi, thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, no, I, I'm glad to have you on here because of kind of what you do. And honestly, when we were talking about this leading up to it, we have a lot of similarities in kind of how we were, how we were raised. The only real difference is we have a similar career, obviously, with pharmacy, but our only real difference is our skin color, and where we were born. So I think that when we talk about this podcast here with vaccine hesitancy and race and some of the issues that we're seeing really brought to light right now, you're a good person for me to talk to about it because we had, do have so much in common. And that's kind of what I wanted to talk about on here. So can you elaborate why you know vaccine hesitancy and race is like a huge issue we're seeing now, especially with COVID?
1: Yeah, so I think the hesitancy is br- really more of understanding and a reckoning of like the undertone of the hesitancy and the mistrust within the community so you know as african-americans and other minorities uh, but particularly african-americans our journey to this country is deep and it's really hurtful right so when we talk about how african-americans came to america a majority if not all came uh, through bondage of slavery and so you have a lot of the the ways in which health was given to us and maybe what people will identify as a mean and, and spiteful way. And so then as we reached being represented and some argued that are we even still really represented? But when we definitely, you know, were free from slavery, there were still things that were inflicted upon African-American communities. And so I think what's most common is the Tuskegee experiment, which for really like four decades, right? So from 1932 to 1972, Black communities were injected with syphilis and then not treated once treatment for uh, syphilis uh, became available until it was publicized in media. And then that was when there was a public outcry and then there was recognition of uh, this particular experiment and the detriment to the black community. And there are other situations as well that uh, that has happened that is really embedded back into to slavery when African-Americans did not have a right to get health care, did not have a right to pursue their discomforts and their symptoms that they've had. But then you have the story of Henrietta Lacks with regards to, to how we look at genomics. And also you have things like the Sims speculum, which is in gynecology obstetrics, in which African-Americans and enslaved women had to undergo uh, utilizing the research that a, ph- a physician uh, was researching in order to develop this apparatus that's still used in amongst OBGYNs today. So I think, you know, when you think about the deep, and I don't really want to say rich, right, but the deep hurtful uh, encounters that the African-American community had with regards to the government, which were, with regards to how they sought and received health care, Uh, It's evident. And so now you have this global pandemic that kind of came out of nowhere, depending on how you perceive and how you see the global pandemic. You know, we were living our lives. And then in March, all of a sudden, our lives drastically changed. And now for a year, we've been dealing with this global pandemic. And with regards to this global pandemic, there's been a lot of things that has been moving fast. Right. And so if you're familiar with the previous uh, presidential administration, uh, their approach to, to developing and putting out the vaccine, what's called Operation Warp Speed, right? And so when you think about warp speed, that's what a lot of people, regardless of race, I think, think about, you know, how uh, the evolution of this vaccine was presented, is that it was presented with such rapid speed that is it beneficial, is it helpful? Right. And so because of that, we're not looking at a lot of the work and listening to a lot of the scientists that talks about the work and the years that have been put into RNA a vaccine study. So it's not that the vaccine came out in March of last year and now all of a sudden we have this novel vaccine It's that we've been researching pathways and vehicles to develop such a vaccine. And now we have an opportunity to put it to use, if that makes sense. And so I think that that's the story and that's the conversation that that has to be had. And I think it has to be had with, uh, with individuals from the community who look And think and have similar experiences of the individuals in those particular communities. And I'm sure we'll dive into what that looks like later. But I think that that's really where you talk about and where you where you can start the conversation of the hesitancy and mistrust amongst the African-American community with regards to the COVID vaccine or even just the COVID virus in general.
0: Yeah, and I think you hit on some key things there. One, the name, Operation Warp Speed, does lend itself to a little bit of like almost recklessness, if you will. like Just when you think, like I'm going to go as fast as possible, warp speed, and you think, okay, maybe some steps were skipped, which we know that they kind of condensed the trials a little bit, but we also know that they were very open with all these vaccines and kind of some of the data. And we're seeing that with AstraZeneca still play out, some of the hiccups along the way. And I think that that's a valid point you bring up there. Maybe they should have named it, Operation really fast but thorough instead of operation right. whip speed or something like that. Uh, but I, again, you reference the uh, Tuskegee Airman experiment, which is one of those things that we learn about a lot in pharmacy school. And I think it can't, we kind of, I don't want to say brushed over it where I went, but it was definitely like a footnote, if you will. But I think there's a lot more to it when you look at medical ethics and the standards of just how we handle medicine today, because it's a perfect example of once bitten and twice shy, where, you know, you Really did a whole community of people wrong here for uh, just a like you said four decades, which I actually thought was shorter than that. But again, that's that's crazy how long it was, and that's really wasn't that long ago. I mean, like if you said it ended in 1972 that was the year my mom graduated high school. So it was not that long ago. We're talking our parents' generation here. And this is one of those things that it's going to stick out in their heads because it happened in their lifetime. And obviously, they're going to kind of pass what they see and believe on to their kids, their family, and people around them. So I can totally understand why communities, especially like African-American community, has really been a little bit more hesitant, as we've seen, with getting the vaccine here because of Basically, past experiments that were done on them, as you referenced a couple in a couple situations there. When, it, when we start talking about this stuff, it's just crazy because it's weird for me as a as a as a white person in a white coat when I'm talking to people who are, have different skin tones than me. Sometimes I realize it doesn't matter what I say or what I do because I'm just really not the right person to convey the message. And you kind of hit on that. And we've seen a lot of people kind of speak up. Who have you seen really kind of step up? That's been a good role model and maybe not just for the African-American community, but for like the minority communities in general to kind of be a voice here that people have kind of responded to.
1: Yeah. So, you know, I think it's a lot to unpack there, right? Because you talk about like the, you talk about, and I'll get to like the individuals uh, who I think have, have stepped up, but I think, you know, when you think about just like how we experience education in this country, it's a lot of things that are left out are not told or told really, really fast uh, and not in in context of what's going on and different things of that nature. So, and these are really difficult conversations, but I appreciate being invited to have them because I think we we need to have them because regardless of whether you're a black man in a, in a white coat like I am or a white man in a white coat, we should be able to see our patients for who they are and they should be able to see within the work that we do that we really care for them. And I think that that's important. But I think when you talk about like we become our professional and our professional capacities through education. Right. And so education really somewhat kind of fails us with regards to that, because you and so many people mentioned, you know, like the Tuskegee experiment as a Tuskegee Airmen experiment. And I don't really want to like it's a bad thing that we don't know because we're all learning right now. Right. And so, you know, Tuskegee Airmen was People from people in Tuskegee that were pilots or they wanted to become pilots, but were not allowed to fly, which is different than what happened with the Tuskegee syphilis experiment. Right. And so those were two different things. And I hope I'm saying that correctly uh, because I've kind of tried to do some research on this. And so then the that was sharecroppers, African-American sharecroppers within the Tuskegee uh, communities were were inflicted with this particular study. Right. So there were two. Two different things. But that's important because it kind of just goes, you know, with a lot of, I think, the political rhetoric that that you hear. And I know that we've talked off record about like, you know, like our political positions. But I really think that pharmacists should be apolitical and whatever you do, I think, you know, should kind of be your personal thing. And then if it resonates with who you are, then people just have to kind of like, you know, govern themselves accordingly around you with that but i think really we should be apolitical because when you think about the most current events of like voter suppression and different things of that nature it gets really really kind of messy and muddy because we are supposed to be advocates for patients who can't understand what we think are simple but complex medication regimens and treatment right and so then we expect for them to understand what we think is simple, but the complexities of the United States government structure, right? From a people who for a very long time had to fight for their even right to to vote or to exercise this right. And it seems like continually having to do that. So I think we have to be very, very cautious in who we say we are and how we say that we're trying to provide access and opportunity for our patients. But I think what we see now is we see a lot of minority practitioners, pharmacists, physicians, nurses, and other scientists really stepping up, and particularly our minority, our African-American and other minority, and sometimes even our, you know, white allies that are stepping up and calling out their experiences, calling out their observations. And so I I think I I, kind of taught myself, you know, a lot of times to be very inclusive, whether exclusive. So I don't know if there's anybody that I can shout out that's doing a great job because I think some of the people that I know or that I hear on like Sirius XM, so I listen to 126, the Urban View. And so, you know, they definitely have a lot of physicians and other healthcare providers that come on and talk about the work that they're doing. And I think that that is recognizable because they are hitting mass media, right? And so the African-American community is actually able to hear their voice and recognize their vernacular or recognize their tone as being Black, right, or as being a part of the community. And so then that has a value. But then that limits the person who doesn't have the reach to be on such a SiriusXM. Or Dr. Eric Geyer's podcast, right? But they're in the community and they're doing like good work. You know, they're sacrificing their, they're sacrificing ultimately their life, right? Which is something that we committed to and we should have committed to when we got to pharmacy school, medical school, or whatever school that you, you know, you decide to go and to embark on this, on this health, on this medical uh, career is that you are really having to sometimes. Put your life in danger to save someone else. And so, if I were to recognize a group that I think could have easily said, I'm staying home, it would be our environmental sciences uh, individuals that work at the hospitals and in the community centers that we have. These are people who are not air quotes around in the healthcare profession, but they're healthcare professionals and they're healthcare workers who make sure that the environments that we go to every day are clean or uh, yeah. are hopefully free from the infections of the previous day and different things of that nature. So if I shouted out anybody, I would shout out them, right? Because even though that's what they're supposed to do, like what we are doing to get called out for, like that's what we're supposed to do, right? That's what we went to <laughs> school for, you know? And, and unfortunately, some of our EVS and our environmental science, science workers, they were sometimes downtrodden, you know? And This is the only opportunity that was out there. This was what what fell in their lap at the time, and they took it, and they've grown. Now, I have a lot of friends from undergrad who are actually EVS directors, right? And so, certainly, they went to school, and they were educated and well-trained and prepared to oversee this such important work. And so, it's not to limit them as well, but a lot of times when you look at what people have to do for ends meet, sometimes you just have to do where what's out there and where the opportunity lies, but it's so important that they show up yeah. every day to do that. And so that and so I I'll, I'll get off of that soapbox, but I think it's so important to recognize the good things that people do because it's just the right thing to do and it makes everybody feel good and so that is probably the group that I would highlight and I think Time magazine actually highlighted them as well in one of the, on one of their um cover editions.
0: Yeah, and it was kind of crazy you say that because that was one of those groups that you know I was obviously started a large Facebook group for pharmacy to get protected, which I feel like we're often forgotten about. But I feel like this time we were really highlighted in what we can do. And it wasn't until apparently a couple months in, with the maybe maybe a month in the vaccine rollout, I realized just how important those people are. I'm like, oh, crap, we got to get them vaccinated too because they're on the front lines as much as anybody trying to clean everything up, like literally clean it up. And I thought that's a good call up by you there, Frank. We're kind of moving into this context just naturally here. But when we look at like the breakdown here of Rural versus inner city. I grew up in a more rural area, kind of like on the cusp of like true rural. And we're seeing a lot of hesitancy there with people that kind of fall on the exact opposite demographics with rural being like more white, more lower income. But we see inner city being more, I guess, culturally diverse or minority driven, but also lower income. We're seeing the kind of both ends of the, the spectrum there politically are the ones who are are a little bit hesitant in getting some of these vaccines, kind of just generally speaking with a broad paintbrush, if you will with kind of the main issue really being low health literacy and education. Do you think that education is really the best way to kind of reach these people? And if not, what is?
1: No, so I th- I definitely think that education is a key way to reach uh, anybody. But I think, you know, we have to think about what education is. And so education is really a cover up for relationship. So when you go to pharmacy school, you're getting a pharmacy education. But one of the things that I think that I got from pharmacy school, and I hope that everybody's getting is like, how to build relationships, right? How to build relationships. Uh, Now we have this emphasis on interprofessional education, right? So how to build relationships with physicians and nurses and other players in the healthcare space, but then how do you build relationships with your patients? And so I'm a relationships person. I think I try to really make sure that there's meaningful learning and that there is sense of belonging within every encounter uh, that that I experience with anybody. And so I think when you think about the education system it really goes into resources. And so when you think about how how individuals in rural areas and how individuals in inner cities, you know, may experience education, it's based off of the amount of resources, air quotes around, dollars or monies <laughs> that is given to their particular communities. And so it goes to their if they have a hospital district, right? But to their healthcare system, it goes to their public school system, and so you know when you think about rural communities, I think about maybe lower socioeconomic, white and or other, or uh, racial backgrounds. But when you think about inner cities, you think about maybe like lower uh, socioeconomic black people and other races in backgrounds right and so it's two stark differences but it's almost like the tale of two cities yep. and so with, with regards to the rural area it's it's almost like snail mail right and so we're in this technological world where we get an email like instantly but when you think about it sometimes those rural areas they still may not even have wi-fi accessibility so information getting to them because the resources are not there it's almost like how long it would take them to get their mail in the mail versus you know a community, and so you have limitations based off of access in terms of just you know the best way to describe the lag in time or just the distance it takes to travel, but then in the inner city, which is like in the city that's why it's called inner city right, yeah, or in black communities, you have this uh this rate limiting step that is just no one wants to really do anything in that community. No one are for for a variety of reasons. Right. And some are respectful varieties and some are not so respectful varieties. And so I think, again, that goes to the discomfort of the conversation is that uh, even when there is access or when there's when there's opportunity, I guess. when So when there are factors that are around. So so small stories, those people that are listening that knows me know that sometimes I get winded. (laughs) and tangential, so just bear with me. But, you know, small story is uh, I went to high school in the inner city uh, of Houston, Independent Heights, and there are several churches in this particular community. And the United Methodist Church reached out because they were looking for an opportunity to provide COVID vaccines to the community. And they had some allocation that was supposed to come that because of whatever's going on with allocation of, of the COVID vaccine that we've kind of seen across the country, uh, the day before their vaccine clinic, they had no vaccine. Oof. And so ironically, I had a friend who called me the, that, that same day that they were calling me, telling me that they didn't have any vaccine because she worked for a company that had vaccine. And so she was looking for opportunities in her particular area to create a space for people to be able to have access to this vaccine. Well, my community and my inner city was not in her community. And so, so we had to, you know, do a lot of work and, you know, shout out to her, won't call her name or her company out. But we had to do a lot of work. And so we were able to to provide over 200 COVID vaccines for this community. And there are organizations either like hers or within the same entity as hers that surround this community that nobody is building these relationships within this community, but we want the we want members of this community to go in and spend their dollars for essential items. But then, yet yeah, we're not reaching back to that particular community, and so we know churches have an opportunity to build great relationships with their community, and then also minimize the hesitancy, minimize the mistrust because of the faith that that person has in the person or the entity that's delivering the word that's getting them through. And so that's a that's a pathway to help decrease resistance and hesitancy and increase trust within uh, within things that we know are important and critical to our communities. So I hope that answers the question because I kind of get tangential <laughs> with those particular types of questions. But, but I think it's so important and, and I think my passion really comes out around it.
0: No, I actually think you hit the nail on the head there. And one of the kind of before we even talked about this, one of the things I started doing at my practice was, whenever somebody who would come would come in, I would have a discussion like this with them, like, "Hey, make sure you tell everyone you got it. Tell me a good experience. Tell me a bad experience. I don't care what you tell them. Tell them, you know, what you felt about it and how it felt getting it where I work. And I, like I said, I told people before, I work at a big chain, and I work in an area that's predominantly Hispanic, and then probably about equal parts uh, African American and white. And so when I had someone come in who was a pastor at one of the local churches, and I made sure to talk to him. I probably spent more time with someone like him than I should have just because I was like, hey, look, I'm going to have a tough conversation with you. I need people like you to start telling people your experiences about this. I sat there and went over the whole thing. I'm like, what do you want to know? Ask me any question. Throw anything at me because we had a good rapport with each other. I actually didn't even realize he was a pastor at the time until I was giving him a shot and I had a second Kind of extra really to talk to him. And so I spent a few minutes just kind of going over it and being like, hey, look, I need people like you to really use your influence. And I've had several people come in and they've said, hey, you know, I heard this from my pastor and I'll just kind of ask him, oh, you know, where do you go to church or what was his name? And I obviously won't pray Kippah, but I hear them say his name and I'm like, thank you. Like, thank you so much for using that to make a positive impact in your community, not just with the religious experience, but also the health experience of that community. And honestly, I've had it with people who aren't even like in those kind of influential roles. I had a gentleman who came in It was a normal day to pick up his prescriptions, but I had basically a dose to burn because somebody canceled on me. And I knew he was a dialysis patient. I knew he had, like, diabetes and some other issues. And I was like, look, you're the perfect guy to get this. I had to talk to him. He didn't really trust the vaccine, but he trusted me because he's known me for a while. So I kind of used that pharmacist as as an educator to kind of lean into it a little bit gave him the vaccine, he was hesitant, he was like, that wasn't so bad, gave him a second dose, had a little bit, some of the soreness, but nothing too crazy, and I told him after the second dose, I'm like, I need you to tell everyone in your dialysis center how much they need this, because, you know, when you're in, in dialysis, you have so many other health issues going on that COVID is probably going to wreck your life if you get it, at least a high risk of it, and i've had several people come back and they're say hey i heard from my dialysis center this guy got it and i was like that's awesome i'm so glad that he's out there and i kind of have a little bit of a better rapport with him now and whenever i see him in you know in the drive thru or come in i always make sure to take care of him a little quicker just cuz i know he's kind of spreading the good word out there to keep people protected so I'll try and do a favor for a favor if you will not that i obviously treat him that much better but just try to help you know make his day a little better since he's helping his community so much and I think kind of what you said there was a huge thing of whether it's inner city or if it's rural, you really need to like lean in to your patients. And even if you don't agree with them politically, I do actually think pharmacy is apolitical, even though I run a political pharmacist podcast. I think that one of those things, that if you're in a more rural setting, lean into what some of their fears are. Ask them, have those discussions, hit the hardball questions, if you will. And, you know, it might not work the first time. It might not work the second time. But if they see that you care and you're addressing what their concerns are, they're probably more likely to get the vaccine, whether they're white, African-American, Hispanic, whatever it is, because you're having those conversations. Is that kind of the way you see it too?
1: Oh, absolutely. And so I think, you know, you really tied everything that i kind of talked about, right? You say you, you were a pharmacist. You kind of leverage yourself as a pharmacist, as the educator. But remember I said like education is the plural word for relationships. And so we certainly know when we build relationships in the community that individuals will trust that. And it just really goes to show, you know, why pharmacists are so important. You almost kind of made me bite my tongue on like the apolitical comment or either, you know, just, all right, today change your, the name of your podcast to apolitical pharmacists. <laughs> but but I think, you know, too, I think, you know, we are going to, so, and so let me just back up and say one thing that I have done in my career and would love to do some more is uh, I adjunct Teach, and I teach government for uh, the community college. And so, one of the things that I share, and even when I'm here, when I'm talking to other people in the community, is that everything is political. And so, when yeah. I talk about, you know, apolitical, I meant, you know, really like our delineation of what we represent. We're gonna have, you know, everybody's gonna sometimes have their own personal opinions, but as pharmacists, we. Always oh, to our patients to really sometimes leave our personal opinions uh, at the door for the benefit of our patients. And so, uh, you know, when you think about uh, patients whose religious belief might not be, uh, or their personal views might not be toward abortion, and then there is the controversial of like selling a plan B and yeah. what, where we are in that process, and we won't go there. But I just kind of bring that up to, you know, to, to make the point. Is that what is in the best interest for our patient? Because ultimately, that's why we should be getting up uh, every day. Uh, But certainly, we're going to have our own political views about different things. But, you know, you leveraged an opportunity that you saw that could impact someone's life with the comorbidities of diabetes with with this dose that you've had to give them that benefit. And then, like you say, right, he went out and sung the gospel to whoever his friends and family is. But just speaking on that, you know, it's almost like so so kind of touching on on the gospel and teaching government is that we have to think about everybody has their right to liberty, right? And the yep. liberty is the ability to do whatever you want to do as long as it doesn't infringe on my ability to do whatever I want to do, right? And so I think when you talk about church, when you talk about depending on I mean, you know, sometimes families are a little bit more overbearing to this than the church is. But when you make if if you subscribe to the Christianity, to, to the Christian belief, you go to church every day, but you have to make a decision to be baptized. The church doesn't put it on you that you have to be baptized, but they invite you every Sunday to be baptized. And so I grew up in the Church of Christ faith. And so, you know, every Sunday it's like, they invite you to come, won't you come? And sometimes it seems like, man, like I don't already got baptized, but I should probably go again, you know? <laughs> but 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 it's really just simply an invitation and no one is judging you if you don't go that that Sunday or the next Sunday because it is your liberty to decide when you're ready. And so when you have that liberty as a patient to make a decision for your best interest, then you will make the right decision. Now, because of our professional privilege, we should be educating our patients because we can give them the good, the bad, and the ugly. But when we don't take that opportunity to have a conversation, air quotes around counseling, (laughs) then we lose an opportunity to demystify some of the things that are being, some of the wrong things that are being spread within the community no matter what community you are a part of. Because individuals are going to share their experiences. I remember when the coronavirus outbreak happened and everything was going on. You know, I had friends that were on Facebook and on everything else talking about 5G and the government. (laughs) And I'm like, wait, you know, and so I I could have just ignored the comments like I think so many people did or blocked the people like so many people did. But I had to make posts that were like another side. So if the government is doing all these things and they're watching all of these things, but they're not coming after you for posting this on Facebook, like, (laughs) I don't get it. You're right. So like what makes you what makes you the, the special messenger that's telling us everything the government is doing and will do and want to do to kill off people? but they're not killing you all for telling, the, for, for telling on them, right? <laughs> and so I think we have to have, you know, we have to have those, com- you know, I think those, and, and those are tough conversations because they're definitely conspiracy theorists. Sometimes I su- subscribe to the, cons- to the conspiracy theorist model as well, but I try not to, but I am who I am and I have the experiences to, to kind of like sometimes believe them more than what they probably should be. Um, you know, so again, a tangential story. I travel a lot and I drive, I tell you, every time when I drive, I am so afraid of Sasquatch, because to me, he exists. And so I am so grateful when I make it to whatever destination I am, especially if it's a rural area where there are no streetlights. But, um, but that's a tangential story. If you're listening, don't judge me. It's going to give you some satire and some more interpersonal thoughts about, about me. But I do believe in Sasquatch. Do I really... No, but when I'm out there alone on that road, it's definitely something that comes in my mind. Um,
0: it's almost like a healthy fear, if you will. Like you know, it's one of those things of like you're like, I know this isn't out there, you know. But then you get by yourself, and you're like, you know what? I'm gonna keep my guard up just in case, though.
1: <laughs> That's right, right. I gotta stay up. I gotta make sure, you know. And so, and, and I don't know if I'm so much afraid of Sasquatch because because I've never heard of Sasquatch like hurting anybody. I just don't want to be the person that has to say I saw him for real and then nobody believes me. So, yeah, but I think that that's, you know, some of the some some of the thought process within our community is that we have a lot of myths that were told, you know, and then sometimes those things are are passed on. But then that doesn't negate the fact that within within certain communities and certain races that the stories that are being told and passed down are true and have happened. But I think that, you know, I don't think that we're there and I don't think that we're close, but I think that we are far further along than, than what we were then. But we still have a lot of work to do. And so we see that with current events, right? We see that with what's going on with, with the, the Derek Chauvin trial and, yep. you know, other things that we see, you know, going on today that I think is so important because those things, although we may say, hey, we're just talking about the COVID vaccine, you know, we're just talking about this, like those things have impact in different communities. But, you know, I'm thinking about even when I was in the, I guess, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth grade, somewhere in middle school. And so there was the O.J. Simpson trial. And the impact that it had within our country, within different races, was significant, right? And I think we missed that opportunity. And then shortly after that, we had the death of the late Selena. And and that trial and the impact of that trial with our Mexican-American and Latina and Latinx communities, it 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 had impact that I think that we didn't necessarily hold on to and embrace and share. We just kind of went our individual cultural ways with what happened. Now, maybe in somebody's law school or other places where they look to dissect those particular, you know, trials and hearings, maybe they did but it wasn't enough, I think, for us to really move the needle. And now we see a lot of these indictments or, or no indictment of police officers in African-American communities. Regardless of what we think and what our position of those outcomes, they have significant impact in how communities will embrace health care or not. Because so often, even as a black person, I have to be cautious when I put the white coat on. Because so many people would think that maybe I sold out. I've heard that before. So that's another conversation that those are things that I think, you know, white people and other maybe minority groups don't experience when dealing with black people from the community is that you could go into your own community with this white coat on. And then people are still looking at you side eye because you you drank the Kool-Aid, but I'm not drinking the Kool-Aid, right? Or you drank the juice that the coat drank that killed everybody, or whatnot, but I'm not doing that, right? And I don't trust you now because you have that on, and so um and so we have to be very, very cautious with that. And so, uh, I don't know, so I think, feel like I'm kind of rambling, so I'll let you kind of ask the next question.
0: <laughs> no, no, you're totally, Well, you're actually super on point, and the reason I say that is, like, again, I grew up more of a rural area, uh, Columbia Station, Ohio, for the listeners, if you want to Google it. It used to be a lot smaller back than it is now. It's got a little bit of money coming into it, but You know, I see all these my friends on Facebook who are posting stuff or sharing stuff, and a lot of them totally good. But there's a few people out there who are sharing either the misinformation or studying a local community college professor, it's a Dr. Fauci. And I'm like, you know, that's not exactly apples to apples here. And so many of them would reach out to me and ask me questions about stuff, or I'd see someone share something. And, you know, as a pharmacist, and as you said, kind of like as an educator, I always feel like I have to comment on it. And I really kind of learned that how I, talk to these people matter like i can't just get there and be like wrong and like put a gif up or something like that i really have to kind of engage with them and be like no hey like look at this look at it this way And i'm I'm not always going to convince them especially on social media we know how that plays out but i need other people to see it too and other people to kind of like see that and like know that yeah i did move out of my hometown i did move into a little bit nicer town as far as the income level that if you want to measure it that way but at the same point like i didn't do that There was no plan of that. Like, I fully intended when I left that hometown to come back to it, but then I grew as a person, met other people in my life, and I am where I am now. And that doesn't mean I forgot or I, you know, sold out of that town. Like, some people might think, they think, oh, you left and got educated. Like, you're not one of us anymore. Like, no, that's not at all. Like, if anything, I understand you just as well because I've had time to reflect on it, kind of grow learn some more information that maybe you didn't learn or understand and now I'm trying to share that with you and it's kind of crazy cuz like I've had some of those same exact experiences of people sharing absolute crazy conspiracy theories that I'm like look you know me you know that I'm always the first person when I see something I get a little bit hesitant of it but you know when I saw this stuff leaked out of China as far as like late January I was starting to get a little worried about it cuz China right now is a black box and stuff doesn't leak out of it, which is probably itself its own conspiracy. But that's kind of what led me to be like, no, this is going to get serious. And so when people started kind of seeing that, you know, I was explaining more of my thought process to them, that started to make sense to them. And that's where, you know, and for the more the rural area, that's kind of like how I was addressing it to people I knew. But it's funny because it's almost the exact same messaging when you're looking at what you described in inner city Houston and Houston. Inner city Houston versus where I grew up in rural Ohio is nowhere near the same in any sort of fashion, but it's crazy that the same problem still exists no matter what the race is, which is I think kind of one of the big things and what my next question is for you is if you were in charge of messaging for this rollout from the start, we'll say from like January of 2020 and then the vaccines, everything else, what would you have done differently other than not name it Operation Warp Speed to make people feel better about this rollout?
1: Yeah, that's interesting. And, you know, I think that one of the things, you know, it kind of brings back, you know, I'm an experienced person, I say that, like relationships, right? So I'm thinking about a friend of mine who decided, we graduated high school together, who decided to go back to college. And she called me about about an assignment. And so it was basically similar to this, like pre-COVID, you know? And so when, when COVID kind of happened, like I texted her, and I was like, oh, you see why this is important? And so I think, you know, what I would, And I hesitate because I think one of the bigger challenges with what I would have done differently is because COVID really rocked the whole world, really, in terms of our ability to be mobile, right, and be together. So, you know, I always think that, you know, when you identify uh, those most vulnerable and you do things that are intentional to them. So when you think about like candidates when they run for office, right, what do they do? they deploy themselves to communities and churches, right? And so I think what I would have done in some way is really try to deploy myself to communities, which is tough because we didn't really have a lot of air travel. And, you know, and even if I were like the president, which I don't aspire to be the president of the United States, not (laughs) at this moment, um, but if I were the president, even being in Air Force One was something that you couldn't do because the president is not flying the Air Force, the the, the plane himself, right? There are other people in the plane. And so there were... with that. But I think that I would have tried to employ uh, community workers and liaisons that are on the ground and figure out how we could, you know, get on the infamous Zoom or whatever the technology is that you would use for a, for a virtual meeting and probably try to have virtual meetings to determine what at the grassroots are the issues within particular communities. Because I think, you know, even though we talk about uh, the teller Two Cities and how different we are from your background in the rural area and and my background, having gone to high school in the inner city. And so, you know, just in case that people are listening and they, you know, do some background on me, I personally did not necessarily live in the inner city. But my parents certainly did. And I went to the same high school that they went to. So I want to be clear because I think, you know, hopefully I'm going some places. And so I don't want anybody to back up and say <laughs> he said that he was from the inner city. No. So I definitely grew up in, in not really suburban, but just like really just like. Houston, like whatever you think of Houston as Houston, and then I went to school within this community that I guess people would consider inner city. I just considered it Houston as well, but um, but I think you know when you think of it, the definition, and so I think when you think about that, you know, certainly that community we have a person and multiple people that are identified as leaders within their communities, right? Within those communities, and their go-to people, whether it's the civics associate your civics club president. Or, you know, in Houston, particularly, we have uh, super neighborhoods. And so those super neighborhoods are really like a combination of multiple civics associations. And so the civic association uh, is how the neighborhood kind of comes together to determine, you know, what they want and how they want to operate. And so I think it's super important. So it's really almost like so if you so most people are probably familiar with the homeowners association. Well, I feel like the homeowners associations is like it's like a civics club. Yeah. On steroids. Civics Club don't really come in and say you can't hang your plant here or you can't have this. You know, <laughs> you can't have this decor outside like a homeowners association is. It's really just, you know, protection uh, and togetherness within the community and, and versus, you know, homeowners association, which I think I don't have a homeowners association. Knock on wood, don't want one. Uh, but they comes in and try to, you know, dictate things in the particular community area. But think that we are. And I think that's the that's the conversation. And we can't really demonize a person for their growth. But I think it's super important. So if you don't, you don't have to self-identify. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, like you don't necessarily have to physically be ble- be back in your community to make impact in your community. So whatever high school that you have, is there an Eric Geyer scholarship? Right. If there's not, it's Eric Geyer supporting the Alumni Association, right? Because those are things that help people understand, hey, somebody that went to this high school is a pharmacist. I've never been told in this community that I can be a pharmacist, but this person came from the community and is a pharmacist, from this community and is a pharmacist, so now I can become a pharmacist. And so it's those small impacts to which I do. So I don't have a scholarship at my high school, but I definitely contribute to the, the Alumni Association. I'm a life member of my high school's Alumni Association because it's so important. I usually start off any talk that I do, especially of this magnitude, by prefacing the fact that I am who I am because of the high school that I went to. So I went to Booker T. Washington High School in Houston, Texas. It was the first school in Houston that served and educated African-Americans. It is the high school that my grandfather went to, although he did not finish because he had to tend to family. Uh, It is the high school that both my parents went to. And a lot of my parents' friends are my friends Parents are grandparents. And so I carry that on my shoulder every time when I do something and every time when I want to give up is because there are some people who did not have the opportunity or the courage to pursue the opportunities that my dad did right, and that my mom did that provided me with such a stark difference uh, in, in, in my life. And so I'm indebted to that particular high school for me. So and so I think, you know, when we talk about where we're from, it's important for us to not use them to one up a person. So when you were talking and when you were saying when you were sharing your particular thought process, and I know I'm drifting from the question about who, I'm thinking about the exchange between I think the mayor, the mayor elect of St. Louis, uh, Attorney Terrell and Geraldo Rivera, if you called it. If not, go look at it. Mm-hmm. And so basically Attorney Terrell is a is a civil rights attorney and he was kind of not agreeing with what a statement that the mayor-elect uh, uh, Tashara Jones uh, had said. And so then Geraldo Rivera turns around and says, when was the last time you went back to the hood? It's like, wait, what is that? You know, I, I think it's important, but like we shouldn't use that to, uh, to negatively attack anybody. But we should be doing things and we don't necessarily have to go back to our communities um, to have impact in those communities especially if we moved a significant distance away and but I think when you do that then you're able to identify those individuals that can help build relationships within those communities at the grassroots so kind of circling yep. back to your question is that and so I think about all of the things that well I think about all of the things that went wrong but that's another that's another conversation <laughs> but even when you think about sometimes what may have been identified as a uh, As a positive thing, or I was trying to do the right thing. It may not necessarily be right, because who are you getting to, you know, to be the voice for these individuals? So I think about the media past President Trump. He had meetings with with Steve Harvey, you know, and Lil Wayne and Kanye West. And so where these are black people, they're not black people at the grassroots. Right. And so a lot of the community felt like how are these people in these positions Even though they may be from here or from these communities, they're out and they're making all of this money. So their experiences are completely different than mine. So I guess to, you know, to kind of leverage that and that action. And what I would do is like, let's say, you know, oh, that's a great thing, right? Biden asked me because I don't want to be president. So let's (laughs) use that. So whoever the president is, ask me to come and talk to them. It's going to be. How can we find, how can I identify significant people to poll them so the things that I am seeing when I am speaking to this administration or whatever administration is there is the voice of the people who I am representing. But if I am not meeting with them, if I am not taking their posts, then I can't give life to them. And so those are the things that that's, that's the most significant thing that I would do and it would be really really challenging because with a, the epidemic and the pandemic such as covid that restricted travel restricted you know face to face conversations it would be really really hard but that's what i would strive to do
0: yeah i think that's a i think that's more than noble i think that's the right way to do it and i I really wish that would have started a little more in 2020 so we wouldn't be where we're at in 2021 now that we do have a viable vaccine. So thanks for – it might have been long-winded, but I appreciate the way that you I kind know, of explained the, whole so pro- the, explained the whole thought process. I actually I actually enjoy that so I can get inside your mind a little bit because, like I said, we actually come from very similar backgrounds. But, again, just a basically difference being our skin tone here means a whole world and we're coming to – things like this vaccine, unfortunately. So I do appreciate that. Uh, we're a little short in time, but I do want to get the two questions. I ask everyone who comes on the podcast. Cause I think that you're going to have some unique answers to them that kind of taking a break from COVID necessarily. If you could change one thing in pharmacy that maybe isn't a law, what would you change?
1: So if I would change one thing in pharmacy, that wasn't, that's not a law, I think, you know, it would be breaking down the silos, that, that we have within our organization i think that we are very very powerful but we minimize our strength by our division and so uh you know my vision for pharmacy and through our pharmacy advocacy is that you know i think i tell everybody when i talk to students and particularly pharmacy schools you should be a part of four organizations your state association actually your alumni association your state association a federal organization or a national organization and then an organization that looks like you and represents you. And so for me, that is the National Pharmaceutical Association, which is the first black pharmacy association. And the black pharmacy association that allow black pharmacists to be active in a professional association. Now we represent minorities in our minority groups and pharmacists who uh, service minority populations and underserved populations. But I think when you think about all of the alphabet soup that we have out there for professional organization, there should be one that is the voice for a pharmacy. And I'm speaking on behalf of myself, not an organization, is that I see APHA of being that organization. It does not mean that other organizations cannot independently operate, but APHA should be the voice and where things come up that are in a particular sector or in a particular specialty, they should look to those particular organizations. So if it's something that happens with black Americans and African-Americans or black people, then they should look to work with MPHA because we're doing the good work to represent those individuals. If it's another minority group, they should look to MPHA. If that minority group does not have a national conglomerate of their own, if there is a group that if, if there's an issue that is affecting Senior care pharmacists or sen- senior citizens, then they should look to ASCP, right? And then the, yeah. uh, and if those if those senior citizens or those senior uh, patients are minority, then when they look to ASCP first, ASCP then looks to MPHA, right? And so then we're providing this continuum of care, and it doesn't mean that anybody has to merge. With anybody because that's a that's a that's a critical <laughs> issue and it's something that we hold dear that I know I hold dear with MPHA is I'm not looking to merge but I'm very very active in in APHA I served in the House of Delegates I, I look for, to do more work within APHA because it should be our voice and our guiding light for pharmacy like with with physicians there are a lot of arms of the specialty groups but at the end of the day when physicians want something. It's said through the AMA, the AMA, right? And so regardless of what specialty you're in, you're a physician first. So regardless of what specialty you're in, in pharmacy, you are a pharmacist first, right? And so I think that, 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 that that's the one thing in pharmacy that's not a law that I would change is just how we navigate like being apolitical but in this political space is how do we represent our profession as one and not as a segregated many?
0: yeah i actually totally agree with that so apha is the in this scenario is the umbrella and i think that's a a change that i think a lot of people really want to see for one reason or another, and hopefully they can pay a little bit less in dues and get a little better representation at the same yeah,
1: time. And, and it has to, and, and it has to be done right, right? Yeah. Because right now, we're, we're operating our associations a lot like businesses, and we're in competition with each, with each other, and the reality of it is is that we're not in competition with each other. We're in competition for equal access. You know, and I'll share... That I don't really share, you know. I kind of say I don't really share with other people that are not minority or black. But one of the things that I, you know, I always kind of say is I did everything I was supposed to do, right? Mm-hmm. Went to school, got a degree. I couldn't choose my race, and I chose a profession that is the black person in healthcare. It is the black person in healthcare because as as African Americans, we are telling industries, higher education institutions, corporations that we can do these things and our representation is still marginalized. Yeah. And when we say different things about our representation, people tell us or they point to the few that are doing the things that we say we can do. Yeah. And so in pharmacy, we are doing all of these things and we're saying we want to do all of these things, but we're being marginalized to only a few things. And then when we say these are the things that we can do, these are the things that we want to do. People point to the few pharmacists that are doing those particular things and saying, oh, but you are doing it, right? <laughs> but is it at the parity and at the equity that it should be?
0: So they're pointing and at the exception, not. not the rule, basically. Yeah. That's right. All right. Yeah, no, I, I love that entire answer that you gave. I, I love every part of that. Um, last question here is, uh, if you could change one law in pharmacy, what would it be and why?
1: So that's really, I think. Uh, I think you know when you look to uh, APHA and a lot of the other organizations, and one of the things that that we're looking at is identification of pharmacists as providers. And so, and, and so I, that's not necessarily a law in pharmacy, but I think it's a law that affects what goes yeah. on in pharmacy. And so, you know, it's it's never really a simple answer with me, but I think that that's so much more. Because I think that we have to look at innovative ways of a, but we have to we have to look at things that are we have to look at pathways, different pathways than what has not worked over a lot of over over a large period of time, and so we've been looking at uh, CMS rules of their identification of what a practitioner is, and it does not include pharmacists. So if there's anybody that's working in that capacity that can advocate for us better, we need CMS to identify pharmacists as. Providers, but we as pharmacists have to do what I think you know. We say all the time in in my community, we have to be able to walk and chew gum. So we have to be able to get that, advocate for that. But then we also have to find other bills. And so I personally like the omnibus reconciliation bill of 1990, uh, because it's, it's like the omnibus because it's like a huge bus with a lot of things inside of it. That's really what gives you know the meat of what pharmacists do, right? So it regulates counseling, it regulates drug utilization review, it regulates you know why we call physicians and you know and do due, due diligence to make sure that the that the medication treatment is 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 accurate and appropriate for the patient. And so uh, I think if we look at at that particular bill and find ways to add reimbursement there. Um, then I think that we can make some 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 strides. And I think there may be other bills, but I think that that's one bill that you know, as I am going back over it uh, for some of the work that I've been doing. You know, it's a bill that really had a lot of riders that jumped on it. So it looks at financial aid at higher education in higher education in addition to other things in pharmacy. So I think we have to be able to walk and chew gum. I think we have to identify, you know, the major point, which is the CMS clause that doesn't identify us too, but we also have to find other ways, you know, to bring that up. And that's not to say that, we're, that we don't, right, and that there are staff people within organizations that do great, awesome work. I just never hear it. And so I think when it comes down to the one law that I would change, it's what really denotes what pharmacists is able to do by virtue of being paid, because I certainly will work and do this work, and I've done a lot of community service for free, and yeah. will do it. But there, but there comes a time when people in industries have to know and understand what our worth and our value is to patients and the future of this country, and so I think that you know when we get to that point within CMS, identifying as us of of that you will see a large decrease in health disparities. Uh, You will see a large increase in patient quality of life. And that's not to say that physicians, dentists, veterinarians, and other practitioners that are listed within that cause don't do an awesome job. But when you look at the number of individuals that simply don't have access to a practitioner, adding pharmacists as a practitioner Will add value just alone by adding equitable access to a healthcare provider, and so um, so I'll end with that. But I think that that's one of the laws that I, that that I would change, and so it's not necessarily in pharmacy, but it definitely affects how we work and how we operate and how we make impact within pharmacy.
0: Yeah, I that's one that a lot of people have kind of echoed on, and I think it's huge because, like you said, there's. I'm glad you broke it down to equitable access and quality and all the other aspects of it. You really encapsulated the whole thing there. I I love that and I love everything about that. And I think that's something that if we see that change, we're going to see our profession change for the better and not just for us, but also for the patients and for healthcare, like you said. So that's awesome. Hey, Frank, it's been great having you on here. I, I swear to God, whenever we talk, like we just hit it off and I, I almost feel like we're like truly brothers who just somehow were raised in different neighborhoods because everything you say I almost just want to echo the exact same thing but from the opposite side of the color spectrum as far as our race and so thanks for being a great guest on here and thanks for sharing your opinions and how we can try and break down some of these issues with racism and I think just I think having conversations like this alone is just one big step in doing that so thanks for coming on the podcast
1: oh no problem thanks for having me I look forward to coming on again when we can have another great conversation
0: yeah, for sure. And listeners, if you like this, obviously, please share this track. I think this is a hugely important one that really kind of dives more in the political aspect than most of the other part, far, other podcast episodes I do that are more in the pharmacy and kind of the niche political aspect, if you will. But as always, thanks for listening to the Political Pharmacist Podcast, your prescription for pharmacy and politics.